The Godfather Part II takes up where the first film ended, with Michael Corleone, played again by Al Pacino, ascending to the position of Don. In the study of the Long Island family home where his father once presided, Don Michael now receives oaths of allegiance from his three loyal capo regime. As Rocco Lampone, played by Tom Rosqui, bows to kiss the new Don's hand, Michael's eyes drift away a moment, clearly in contemplation. Then, as his henchmen step aside, we see the leather armchair where Don Vita once sat, and we realise what Michael is thinking. My father taught me many things here. He taught me in this room. He taught me, keep your friends close, but your enemies closer. Having just ascended to the throne, the new Don's thoughts are of the late Don. But Michael does not take to the seat. Instead, he too walks away. Which means the following three and a half hours will plot the points of Michael's struggle with, and ultimate inability to, inherit his father's power. To quote from Shakespeare's Henry IV Part II, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. You're going to take over. You're going to be the doubt. What I think has happened has happened. I'm going to leave here tonight. I give you complete power, Tom. Over Fredo and his men, Rocco, Neri, everyone. I'm trusting you with the lives of my wife and my children, the future of this family. Much has been written about the way the sequel not so much takes up from where the first film left off, as much as it wraps around the original, two stories to show what happened next, as well as an origin story showing us what happened before. And while it has often been said that the sequel intercuts the rise of Vito Corleone, played in an Oscar-winning performance by Robert De Niro, with Michael's decline, the truth is it does not do that. If that were the case, Director and co-writer Francis Ford Coppola would have contradicted and undermined the main reason why he agreed to make the sequel. Coppola had only and very reluctantly undertaken the first film because it promised him the chance to clear his financial debts, an offer he couldn't refuse. But on an artistic level, he took the assignment because he felt it afforded him the opportunity to say something about, amongst other things, the corrosive nature of power. The fact that audiences cheered as Michael had his enemies murdered rankled enormously with the director. So Coppola's intention with the sequel was to leave the audience in no doubt that although Michael had won, he had lost his soul. Remember how in the first film he said to Kay, My father's way of doing things is over, it's finished. Even he knows that. I mean in five years the Corleone family is going to be completely legitimate. And in the second film, as Kay, played by Diane Keaton, dances with Michael on the evening of their son's First Holy Communion, she says to him, It made me think of what you once told me. In five years, the Corleone family will be completely legitimate. That was seven years ago. I know. I'm trying, Doc. Simply, the cross-cutting between the two time frames shows just how deeply Michael is haunted by the memory of his father. And as he struggles to legitimise the business, the ghost of Don Vito, and more particularly, the ghost of his father's descent into criminality, hangs over him like an omen predicting his own future. 
which is precisely what, in the first film, Don Vito, played by Marlon Brando, had anxiously confided to his son. I never, I never wanted this for you. I worked my whole life. I don't apologize to take care of my family. And I refuse to be a fool. Dancing on the string, hell violas, big shots. I don't apologize, that's my life, but I thought that... But when it was your time, that... That you would be the one to hold the strings. Senator Corleone. Just as the sequel wraps itself around the first film, so too do the crimes of the father wrap so tightly around the son that ultimately there is no escape for him. The sequences devoted to young Vito are no doubt stories the old Vito told Michael, imparted as lessons instructing the son on how to deal with enemies. But now, with Michael struggling to legitimise the business, he recalls his father's stories in an effort to strengthen himself in a time of intense crisis. But let us be clear, Vito secured his position through criminality, so his rise to power is in fact a descent into evil. Which means, as Michael's crisis deepens, the more he can only recall his father's fall. And the more Michael dwells on that, the more petrified he becomes in the face of his new trials. A fate he had once struggled so hard to avoid, finally he embraces it to become a man even more wicked, more malevolent than his father. Sit down. You're nothing to me now. You're not a brother. You're not a friend. I don't want to know you or what you do. I don't want to see you at the hotels. I don't want you near my house. When you see our mother, I want to know a day in advance, so I won't be there. Coppola and his fellow screenwriter Mario Puzo constructed their plot around a series of events that echoed the first film. Which is why again, several sequences revolve around religious ceremonies. Two weddings and a baptism in the first film, a communion, a religious festival and a solemn prayer in the second. Beyond that, there are many echoes. Once again, we see a young, seemingly decent man being inducted into the world of violent criminality. In the first film, the son Michael, while in the second, the father Vito. In the first film, it seemed that Michael had gone to hide out in Sicily, but while there, he absorbed the ways of the Mafia. In part two, his father returns there to take his vengeance against the Mafia chieftain, Don Ciccio, played by Giuseppe Salato, who had, decades earlier, murdered his entire family. Just as in the first film, when Tom, played by Robert Duval, had to tell his Don that Sonny had been shot to death at the causeway. In part two, it is Tom again who has to deliver bad news. This time, that Kay has suffered a miscarriage. Beyond that, and in a wider context, we see business practices as an extension of criminality. In the first film, the Corleone's business interests take them from New York to Las Vegas in Nevada. In part two, they become a near imperial power when they seek to take control of a foreign country. Here we are, protected, free to make our profits without Kiefer over the goddamn Justice Department and the FBI. 90 miles away, partnership with a friendly government. So much for the comparisons, the contrasts are even more pronounced. 
The first film charts the relationship between Michael and Kay, while the second details the dissolution of their marriage. Also, in the first film, at Connie's wedding, Sonny, played by James Caan, goes out to confront the FBI as they prowl around the gates checking the license plates of all the cars. But in part two, at Anthony's communion, the Corleones send waiters out to the state troopers who are providing security for the event. Now consider the Oscar-winning music composed and arranged by Nino Rota and Carmine Coppola. At the wedding in the first film, the guests danced to a tarantella. In part two, Frankie Pantangeli, played by Michael Vigazzo, tries to get the band to play the tune. But all they can manage is this. Again, at the wedding in the first film, the guests are served with canapes and fine wine. In part two, it is chopped liver, a Ritz cracker and a champagne cocktail. That homogenization is a complaint echoed by Henry Hill at the end of Scorsese's Goodfellas. Can't even get decent food. Right after I got here, I ordered some spaghetti with marinara sauce and I got egg noodles and ketchup. In the first film, politicians did not dare attend the wedding, lest they be photographed by the FBI. Instead, they sent congratulatory telegrams. However, in part two, a very prominent guest of the communion party is Senator Pat Geary, played by G.D. Spradlin, which initially suggests that Michael has succeeded in severing all links with the criminal world. But where in the first film, the Don received requests, in part two, it is Michael who is making a request. He hopes that the Senator will smooth the way for him to take over a Nevada casino. Likewise, where the first film climaxes with mass assassinations, the second film ends with Michael ordering for an aging and decrepit enemy to be gunned down. He commands a loyal capo regime to take his own life. And then he has his own brother murdered. Hail Mary, full of grace, blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners. In the first film, the man who instructed Michael how to shoot a gun was Clemenza, played by Richard Castellano. In part two, it is a young version of Clemenza, played this time by Bruno Kirby, who induces young Vito into the life of crime. And if you look closely, you will see that Coppola repeats the same shot to strengthen the link between the two events. When Clemenza tutored Michael, the lesson started with Clemenza lowering the handgun into shot. In part two, 
we see how young Clemenza comes into contact with a young Vito. One evening, while having dinner with his wife Carmela, played by Francesco Di Sapio, Vito hears a knock on the window. He opens it to see a man throwing him a bundle from the neighbouring building. He wants Vito to hide it. Wondering what is in the bundle, Vito lowers it into the bath to reveal guns. For the second film, Coppola had hoped that he would be able to reunite the surviving cast and respective actors. But unfortunately, Richard Castellano insisted that he would only return for part two on the condition that he could create his own dialogue. So Coppola had to write him out and create a substitute, which explains the character of Frankie Pentangeli. But however splendid Gazzo was in the role, and he received an Oscar nomination, Castellano's demands denied a rich subplot for the second film. With Don Vito now dead, Clemenza would have become Michael's surrogate father, a bond that would have ended with Michael ordering him to take his own life. When a plot against the Emperor failed, plotters were always given a chance to let the families keep their fortunes. Yeah, but only the rich guys, Tom. The little guys, they got knocked off and all their estates went to the emperors. Unless they went home and they killed themselves, then nothing happened. And their families, their families were taken care of, Tom. That was a good break. Nice deal. Yeah. But part two doesn't only echo the first film. It echoes itself with Michael's episodes offering contrasts to those of his father. At his son's communion party, Michael asks Senator Geary to help him secure a new casino license. But Geary reveals that he knows that Michael's real intention is to move out a significant shareholder in order to make way for one of his own associates. An equivalent moment is found in Vito's story when he loses his job in a grocery store because Don Fenucci, played by Gaston Moschine, wants his nephew to work there instead. Another, more emphatic echo is sourced to the film's opening in 1901. With Vito's father and brother murdered by Don Ciccio, Vito's mother, played by Maria Carta, goes to the chieftain and pleads clemency for her only surviving son. Later, in 1959, Connie, played by Talia Shire, pleads clemency to Michael for their only surviving brother, Fredo, played by John Cazale. Can't you forgive Fredo? He's so sweet! and helpless without you. That Fredo is murdered while saying a Hail Mary is a moment loaded with irony. Not only because it is, just like the baptism sequence in the first film, a desecration of a holy vow, but also because Fredo is praying to a woman. And just like the first film, the position of women within the sequel is highly complex, deeply ingrained within the contradiction and hypocrisy of the Corleone's patriarchy. It is only after their mother dies that Michael orders Fredo's murder, which would suggest that women have a hold over the men's potential for evil. Well, of course they do. Without women, there would be no children, and without children, there would be no sons and heirs. Which explains Kay's effort to discontinue the line of succession. I didn't want your son, Michael. I wouldn't bring another one of your sons into this world. It was an abortion, Michael. It was a son, a son, and I had it killed because this must all end. 
The revelation that Kay underwent an abortion is shocking to Michael, but it is very telling that when he was initially informed that Kay had suffered a miscarriage, his only concern was whether the baby had been a boy. Mikey, after three and a half months. Now can't you give me a straight answer anymore? Was it a boy? Nominated for 11 Academy Awards, a winner of six, including Best Picture, Director and Adapted Screenplay, The Godfather Part Two is an immense and densely woven text. The material and the way Coppola deals with it is so detailed it can be analysed not only cinematically, dramatically and artistically, but also historically, sociologically, culturally and politically. But to say it is a tapestry interlacing themes, techniques and tropes would be an understatement. Tapestries eventually fray over time. For me, The Godfather is so resilient it endures like granite, towering over American cinema's landscape like Mount Rushmore.